in the book of Nahum. We spent four weeks at Jonah, and we literally blinked past Jonah. There was no word studies, no breakdown. We, we just kind of the equivalent of a chapter a day. And, and, and even though we blinked at, at Jonah, I just saw an awful lot there. I, I hope you guys got something out of that story. Um, I, I really got several, <laughs> several good things out of it. But as Paul Harvey would have said, and now page two, the rest of the story. Nineveh's story doesn't end with Jonah. Nineveh's story doesn't end with a happy ending. There was a happy time when Jonah went through and as we studied, even though he didn't tell them to repent like God told them to, what he said was, yet 40 days and none of us shall be destroyed. He, he didn't offer all of the salvation like he was supposed to. He just let them know that God was angry with them. And that he was there to let them know that God was about to destroy them. And so that was a happy story. That was a happy time. And uh, they, they repented in sackcloth and ashes. And, and God repented of the evil and, and he spared them. But unfortunately... <coughs> That, that's not the end of the story here of Nineveh. We have Nahum. Nahum is, is it's a book of the impending doom, if you will. It is the fall of an empire because they offended God. It's a book that, in all honesty, you very seldom hear any messages from. I, I was trying to think as I was studying it. If I've ever heard a message preached from Nahum, it didn't make enough impact in my life that I remember it. I'm not saying I've never heard one, but you guys know what I'm talking about. There's nothing in it that stood out. There's nothing that grabbed me. I don't, I, I don't remember really hearing anything. Stop that. I, I, don't, I don't really know why it's, it's not a book that that we would spend more time teaching because it would do America a, a huge favor if we would study this book and, and preach this book and heed to this book. There are some things in this book that we need to pay close attention to. It's interesting that God used two of his prophets just to talk about this city of Nineveh, to tell us stories about this, this one city. I mean, you have 17 prophets. You have the 12 minors called the 12 and the five majors. And, and, and then God would use two of those just to talk about this city. That, that's 25% of the Bible in terms of books. It contains prophets. And, and that means about 12% or so of the prophets are, are dealing with the city of, of Nineveh. So there's got to be something pretty important for God to invest that kind of percentage, that kind of time into just these, these three little chapters right here. So I, I don't know. It just seems that they would have to carry a lot of value. So God used Jonah. We looked at it earlier to, to tell us about repentance, to tell us about forgiveness and, and to show us a picture of what God will do for those who will turn from their sins. And then about 130 years later, he uses this same city to show us what happens to those who basically spit in the face of God's mercy. 
who basically spit in the face of God's grace and God's forgiveness and turn back to their sin and go back to the old way of life. The, the prophets themselves are, are primarily known for the messages that they delivered. If you remember when we looked at Jonah, I made the statement, had Jonah not told us that story, he would have been quite a famous prophet. We don't really know a whole lot about him, but everything else that he prophesied was good things. We know, we know about the bad part of him because he told us. He took time to put that in there, but, but they're mostly known for the messages that they delivered. And in the Greek language, that, that term prophet, it shows us that it's somebody who delivers a message from God to the people. But the Hebrew word used in the Old Testament refers to someone who, who is called by God. So, so a little bit different, not just someone who delivered a message, but somebody that is actually called by God to be a deliverer of God's word. So being called a prophet meant that they had to proclaim to the people whatever message God delivered to them. So for a period of roughly 600 years, God guided his people through the words of prophets. Now, sometimes when they were given these prophecies and things they had to put out, sometimes those things offended kings. So sometimes those things were, were offensive to royalty and to, to higher ups. They, 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 they called out false prophets. They insulted rulers. Sometimes their message was favorable. Sometimes their message is not. But they, they had no choice on whether to deliver it. Their job, good news, bad news, against somebody for somebody, their job is to deliver God's message. So, so prophets usually seem like they, they, they rise to the surface, they deliver a message, and then many times it's like they, they settle back in for a while. You see with most of the prophets, they're, they're back, I don't want to say out of sight, out of mind. And I'm sure there's a lot going on there, but it wasn't the things that made the book. And, and so, so the prophets provide us with, with a lot of things in the Word of God. They give us a, a perspective of the past because they recorded their present. But they give, us, they give us a great look. They give us a lot of hope, a lot of confidence. Because what they did is, is they, they told us of the omnipotence of God. They, they allowed us to see God proclaim things and fulfill things. Anybody with me? It, it allows us the opportunity to see God make a statement about what's going to happen and, and then fulfill what's going to happen. The reason that's important to us is because we have one that's not yet fulfilled. We've got one with a lot of hope. Tim talked about it a while ago, about Jesus stepping out on the cloud and the trumpet sounding. Gabriel hits the trumpet. We have a prophecy yet to be fulfilled, but because we can look back and see how it has always worked, we can know that it ain't going to change because I am God and I change it not. That means it's going to happen in Revelation just like it's projected, just like it's prophesied. So when we look back at these prophecies and we see how they said things it gives us the hope of knowing the fulfillment that what is promised is going to come there is a day that we can know that when, when jesus said, i go to prepare a place if i go to prepare a place i'll come receive you unto myself that means he's coming to receive me unto himself 
that, that, that where he is, there we'll be with him. That means that, that when we see him, we shall be like him. That, that day is coming. There, there's some hope. We gain a lot from the prophets and from studying the, the things of, of the prophet. It gives us a, a, a lot of knowledge. It gives us continuity of the scriptures by tying things together. It gives us a much more complete look at the context of the word of God and putting everything together. The importance is pointed out, number one, by the number of times that, that Jesus Christ himself makes reference to the prophets. Liberty University put out a statement. It says, it's been estimated that over one-tenth of Jesus' recorded New Testament words were taken from the Old Testament. In the four Gospels, 180 of the 1,800 verses that report his discourses are either Old Testament quotes or Old Testament allusions, alluding to things of the Old Testament. Another study said 283 direct citations from the Old Testament in the New Testament. Obviously, I didn't go try to count that. I'm just reading, reading you a few things that some people that have studied and put out there said. This one says that Jesus quoted in the Old Testament 78 times, 26 of those being from the Pentateuch or from the first five books of the Bible. So, so I mean, there's a variation. It depends on what you put as a quote or what you don't. But, but let me just simplify what it, what it does tell us. Jesus put a stamp on the importance of the prophets. Je Jesus put an exclamation mark on the importance of the prophets by referring back to them. He showed us how important the Old Testament and the old prophets and prophecies were by referring to them in the New Testament. So some of the prophets we, we know a good bit about and some of them we know practically nothing about. Nahum is one of those guys. Nahum, uh, Habakkuk, Zephaniah. There's some of those guys, we just, we just don't know anything about them. There's not any information in there. We have no, no personal book, but we do have their writings. And that's what God wants us to have. What we know about them is irrelevant. If we knew as much about them as we did about the Apostle Paul, it's irrelevant. The only reason it helps us know things about the Apostle Paul is because we can relate to those things in our life, the thorn in the flesh and the things I would do, I do not, and the things I would not do, the things that, there's those relations there. But, but you don't have to have that from everybody. What we need is the content. What we need is what God told them to, to write. So, so we, don't, we, we have what we need. So in the days of, of Jonah, Nineveh was a great city, but Technically, they were still on the rise. They, they were still rising in terms of world power. There's still a lot of kingdoms out there to be conquered. There's still a lot of cities to be overthrown and, and brought into their realm. And in, in the days of Jonah, they were still obviously in a place of possible correction. They were in a place where they could still see God. They at least had some vision to look back out of their sin and see the power of God. There was at least still obviously some possibility of, of, of surrender and, and repentance and coming back into place. We know that because we, we saw it, that they were in a place where they still knew about God, but yet world power was calling on. Who calls me in the middle of church from Hinckley, Minnesota? That's why I'll never bring a phone up here. I'm, I'm going to start leaving it back after prayer request so it don't do that again. Somebody call Minnesota and tell them it's church time in Georgia. Lord help us. So, so, so back, back, back. We, we were at Jonah, and, and that they still knew about the things of God. And the, the book of Jonah was was a warning. Jonah was a warning of what 
can happen if you don't repent. Nahum is a vision of what's going to happen because you haven't. There's a huge difference in these two books. And I'll be honest, I'm not overly well prepared tonight because I kept running so many rabbits. There are, there are some nuggets in here the size of Stone Mountain that I kept seeing them and going off and trying to get pieces and having to try to come back to just put Nahum for tonight. But there are some huge relationships in here between Jonah and Nahum and, and our lives and personal stuff that uh, I, I don't know if we'll do it on Wednesday night if those will become Sunday morning messages. But, but at any rate, um, the, the, the date of the writing, we don't really have it. We can get pretty close as to when the date would have been. One of the mark that Nahum gives us is the fall of the Egyptian city, Thebes. It's chapter 3, verse 7. He says, that it shall come to pass in that day that all look upon thee shall flee from thee and say, Nineveh is laid to waste, and who will bemoan her? When shall I seek confidence for her? What God says, ain't nobody going to be sad that she's gone. There ain't nobody out there heartbroken about that. I'm not going to find any confidence because Nineveh is, is laid waste. Says, Art thou better than, than populous no? And there, there was situate among the rivers that the waters round about it, whose rampart was the sea and, and her wall was from the sea. Ethiopia and Egypt were her strength and was infinite. And put and, and Lubum were thy helpers. And yet she was carried away. She went into captivity. Her young children were also dashed in pieces at the top of all the streets. And they cast lots for her honorable men. And all her great men were bound in chains. Now we know that that happened in 663 B.C. And, and we know that Nineveh fell at 612. Well, some say 613, but it's pretty conclusive. Most think 612 B.C. But that gives us a 52-year window. Somewhere in that 52 years is when this prophecy was written. I'm, I'm thinking it's going to be closer to that. That 12 mark, I don't think God put that warning way out there and made him wait 35 years for it to happen. But, but we really don't. We just know that it's in that window based on the things that we're told. But here's what Nahum said, chapter 1, verse 1, the burden of Nineveh. The book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkishite. Now, even Elkishite is, is, is a controversial statement among scholars. Some say, well, that's because he, that's the city that he's from. Others say, well, that's the city of, uh, of where his family was from. But then others say it just describes the type of man that he was. It has nothing to do with where he was from. So we really don't even know where he's from. We, we know that that's a possibility, but there's many things. So the one thing we thought we knew about him was at least we knew where he was from. We don't, we don't even know that we know that. But verse number two, he says, God is jealous. And the Lord revenges. The Lord revenges and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries and he reserveth wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord hath his way in the whirlwind and in the storm. And the clouds are the dust of his feet. See, Jonah would have given his life to have delivered this message to Nineveh. I mean, Jonah would have given everything he had to get to deliver this. That you're going down, chumps. Your day has come. God has dialed up your number and it is over for you. I mean, he all, he all but gave up his life trying to keep from having to deliver the message that God gave him to because he didn't want God to forgive him. So he all but gave his life to keep from delivering the good news of the gospel. But, but reality is he, he would have gladly delivered this one. I mean, he, he despised the, these guys. Now, everybody would have hated 
Nineveh and the Assyrians by, by the time of this letter. To, to deliver this message would have made Nahum a very popular man. Anybody that, that put this out as a prophet that would be fulfilled becomes very popular because this isn't just Jerusalem or Judea. This is all the cities. This is everybody that has been brutally abused by this Assyrian empire over this past 130 years since what we saw uh, of the repent. Obviously, the repent back with, with uh, Jonah didn't last very long. And so now they've turned into this wicked city. And, and Nineveh is known as the largest city ever at the time of her demise. It says the walls were considered impossible to overcome, a hundred foot high and so thick that three chariots could ride side by side around the top of the walls. It says that they were between seven and eight miles in circumference and they enclosed about 1,800 acres, 1,200 watchtowers around the walls. The Tigris River protected it on some sides while a deep trench filled with water protected it on the other side so so overcoming these walls would seem like a, a near impossible feat i mean nothing seems more unlikely than the fall of nineveh everybody is terrified of nineveh even just the thought of the assyrian armies we talked about the cruelties briefly when we looked at jonah and we talked about the reason that jonah hated him so bad is because of their cruelties towards the Jews. The reason that Jonah hated them so bad is because of the way they, they treated God's people and the things that were there. So, so Jonah ha had a reason to hate them. And we, we talked about that a, a little bit. But now, now they, they've gone into a whole new level of cruelty. They, they've gone into a whole nother realm of, of world power. I'm going to give you just about five of the 30 things that they give because most of it is too grotesque to even talk about the, the things that are on record that the Assyrians did. But when they went into a city, one of the first things they did was kill the children, cut them into pieces. I'm a little surprised because it didn't talk about what they did to the women, but I'm pretty sure I would hate to know that. But it talked about what they did to the men. Then they killed the men, but they didn't do the favor of just killing them. I mean, they did things like made holes and stuck sticks in the ground and sharpened the ends and set them up on them and impaled them so that the gravity caused them to come down over that thing in a slow, agonizing death. They did things like skin men alive and take their skins and paste them to the walls or houses of the city so that anybody that even had a thought that they would dare rebel against the Sirius says, oh, no. They'd, they'd be terrified. They took the kings and they took the men in charge. They took them back to, to, to Nineveh and they, they would parade them and make a mockery of them. And then they would torture them. They ripped their tongues out. They, they, they dismembered body parts. There's one story about taking three of the kings from cities and, and harnessing them up like horses and making them pull the Assyrian king's chariot around the town as he paraded and beat him a whip. And then they ended the day by hanging him in front of everybody. So this is a very brutal people. There, there are, are horrible things done here by, by these people. So you understand everybody hates them. There, there's nobody going to be sorry about Nineveh and the Assyrians being being overthrown. God even allowed the Assyrians to bring judgment on his own people. But it's because God's own people turn their back on God and turn to idolatry. Make no mistakes about it. God will punish his people. 
Dale and I was talking about earlier, it's one of the rabbits that I ran a little bit today, and it's going to be a study here, and I may mention it again in a minute, but one of the things that I saw in this study is the difference between punishment and vengeance. Punishment and vengeance. See, we, 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 we looked at um, Nehemiah on Sunday mornings, and we saw, we know that when, when the Babylonian Empire came in and destroyed it, they destroyed the walls and they burned the gates with fire. We know the story, right? We just spent some Sunday mornings, four weeks, looking at it. But yet, there was a remnant of the walls, correct? Somebody say amen if there was. I mean, there was a space. You could see the debris. You could see the stuff. The outline was still there. The debris was so much that at one point the workers became distracted by the rubble and said that we can't, we can't do it because there's so much rubble. And even, even Nehemiah, when he went out and looked, he said that there was so much rubble that the beast that was under me couldn't pass through. So there was a remnant of the wall. God allowed that Babylonian empire to come in and punish his children. And yes, it was a scolding. It was a good thrashing, but the walls remained and God restored that. What you find out about God's vengeance is this great city, the greatest ever of its time at the day of its demise, was eradicated from the earth so that for centuries they didn't even know where it was. Walls a hundred foot high, three chariots wide, sur surrounded uh, miles and miles of walls, and, and it's vanished from the face of the earth. It's not even there. There's no remnants. There's no gates burned with fire. There's no rubble. There's no nothing. That's the difference between God's punishment and God's vengeance. The reason it's important, the reason it's important is because I, I think that's our message for today. I think that's our, I think that's our message to preach. See, that, I, I'm not even going to get through with this. But, but these, are the, these are the little nuggets that I kept running, the little things I kept seeing. I think we're living in a day like the day of Jonah. We're living a day when, when the warning has been sounded. Repent. The day of the Lord is at hand. Repent. I, I think we're in a day just like the day of Jonah where, where the, the trumpet has been sounded, the warning has been issued, the answer has been offered, and for those who accept it and repent, Forgiveness is available. But for those who don't, the day of Nahum is coming. And here's the difference. God will punish his children. We know that. God spanks your backside. When you need it, God lets us go through some things. We see it over and over and over out of them hard-headed, knucklehead Jews. And they turn their backs on God. And then they get a king, they get a king. And, and, and he did evil in the sight of God. And then finally you get another and you think, finally, it says, and he did evil in the sight of God. And you're like, what are you thinking? How many times has God got to do this? But we see him all through the Old Testament. And we see him prophesy to his people that, hey, if you don't get this right, if you don't get this right, I'm going to have you overthrown. I'm going to have Jerusalem and Judea overthrown. I'm going to have your children carried off as slaves. I'm going to have your men killed. If you don't get this right, punishment's coming. And they didn't get it right and they were punished, but there was always a remnant and they were always brought back. That's punishment. But when you get to Nahum, God offered no more solutions. God, God, God offered a solution back there with Jonah. But, but here, here's, here's, here's the, the nugget, the thing I'm, that, 
And, and again, we're just talking about a brief before church, but people today don't understand what they're flirting with. People don't understand what they're faced with. People do not understand the vengeance of God. If you want to see the vengeance of God, go try to find Nineveh. Go try to find Sodom and Gomorrah. It doesn't exist because God erased it from the face of the earth because he hates sin so bad. Sin must be paid for. See, yes, God is grace. Yes, God is mercy. Yes, God is holy. Yes, God, God, God is all of forgiving and long-suffering and, and kind and meek and gentle. And God is all those things. But God is holy, and his holy requires judgment against sin. He's too holy to just let sin go. He's too holy to just overlook it. And sin will be paid for dearly. And anybody that does not accept the gift of God in the Lord Jesus Christ will pay for their sin themselves. Huh? Man, can you imagine that there, there's not even, in, in our greatest degree of imagination, we can't even touch a finite part of, of the depravity of hell. We, we don't even have the slightest realization of the awfulness of hell. I get it. The, 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 the lake of fire where the worm dieth not and separation from God in all of my comprehension I mean, God, you, you remember, you remember what God, you remember what, what God said to Jonah when Jonah was upset because God delivered him, he was mad about it. If you remember, it was the last verse of chapter four, it's the last verse of the book and we peeked ahead at it in week one and we Peaked ahead at it in week two. But, but remember when God was talking to Jonah and, and he said, should I not spare Nineveh, that great city? That's what God said, right? Anybody with me? Y'all remember? Should I not? And, and, and he talked about the 120,000 that, that don't even know the left from the right. He talked about the children. Should I not spare the children? What have they done wrong? You understand God's reasoning with a man. Should, should I not, should not I spare at least the cattle? Should I not spare all of the animals? What have they done wrong? And then he scolded him. Y'all worried about this plant that rose up overnight that you have nothing to do with. You worried about the worm and that's that I have nothing to do with you. Should I not have spared the people? And God did spare them. Now, think about it. The city's bigger now than it was then. The city of Nineveh has overthrown all surrounding kingdoms and all surrounding places and everything belongs to it. And here's the deal. They weren't like the Egyptians. They, they, didn't, they weren't like the Romans. The Romans put garrisons. They left cities out there and they put garrisons in cities to, to keep the cities under Roman rule. They weren't like that. They didn't care about trying to put garrisons of armies to keep another city. They just killed everybody that was there except anybody they could make use of. They carried them back to Nineveh to make slaves out of them. So you understand how much bigger Nineveh has got to be 130 years later than it was in the day when God said, should I have not spared them? And now, 
even though they're even bigger, when God said it is enough, he erased them from the face of the earth. Do we even remotely understand the vengeance of God? I mean, that's not what I'm going to go to bed at night thankful for. I'm going to go to bed thankful for his grace. I'm going to go to bed thankful for his mercy that is so great I can't even understand it. Why be merciful to me? I, I'm going to go to bed thankful for his love that he could love somebody like me. I, I'm going to go to bed thankful for his blessings that he has opened the windows of heaven according to his book. And he has poured out blessings on my family that there be not room enough to receive it. I'm going to go to bed thankful for those things. I'm not going to go to bed thinking about the vengeance of God. But one thing studying these two parallel, these two books, is showing me we need to be busy. We need to be busy. Dale made the statement a while ago, it's more than just a choice between heaven and hell. That's what he said. It's more than just a choice between heaven and hell. And he's exactly right. It, it's more than just a choice. It is the difference between when he takes me by the hand and leads me through the promised land. It, it is the difference of, of being in the presence of God and all the saints and, and, and all the prophets and, and all, all the apostles and all that went before us and, and all of our family and all of our loved ones and at the marriage supper of the Lamb and, and in the goodness of God and the presence of God and in the light where there is no darkness and there's no need of a sun or a moon for, because, because there is no darkness and, and there's a big difference between that place in a place that is cast into outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, we talked a little bit a while back, I don't know, three weeks or so ago, uh, about the light. And, and uh, I, I was telling you about, um, um, yeah, the genius, the brilliant dude, and one, the one that said um, Einstein. Wasn't it that, that said there, there's no such thing as darkness? Y'all remember that? Darkness is not an object. Darkness doesn't exist. Darkness is simply the absence of light. We measure everything by light. Everything is measured by the amount of light. So darkness really isn't an object. Darkness just exists where light's not present. Now think about this. If God is light and they're in darkness, they have to be completely away from the presence of God. That means that God has established a place and put a, a realm around it where his presence is not allowed. I mean, right now when we mess up, we know it. We feel the presence of God. We, we feel the Holy Spirit. We feel the goodness. We feel things. Imagine never feeling the presence of God again. Never thinking a good thought. Never feeling anything about love for anybody because if you love anybody, it's by the goodness of God. And it's not because, because you're just this great person, although you are. But imagine being separated into a place that God has set aside. And the reason it is total darkness is because it is total separation from anything that is him. See, that, that's, that's a picture. There's a, a difference between God's punishment. In God's vengeance. Now let me plug this one in. And we're going to have to go. I'll get back maybe a couple notes. I got a couple more minutes. But that family member. That would keep shying away from the conversation. And thinking I'll have it later. 
that coworker, that friend that thinks, I just ain't worth bringing it up again right now. I don't want to have it. We are subjecting them to the vengeance of God every time we avoid that conversation. We are subjecting them to the possibility of the vengeance of God. It's not just hell, some little four-letter word that we've established. Go, ooh, it's scary. No, it is. I don't even know. I don't have a word. My vocabulary doesn't contain it. But everybody out there that doesn't have Christ, that's where they're going. We're in the day right now. We're in the day just like Jonah. We're in the day when, when we are to go tell Nineveh, repent, repent. The kingdom of God is at hand, repent. There's a gift. It's offered. It's forgiveness. It's Christ. It's free. Repent. We're in a day when it can be offered. The day is coming when there's no more offer. The day is coming that there's no offer in the grave. Hebrews 9, 27, appointed unto man wants to die after this, the judgment. Everybody's going to die. There is no offer left in the grave. After 9, 27 is the judgment. And that's all that's left. And we're by people every day. Every day. I told y'all I couldn't even stay with my nose. I've, I've run so many rabbits today. I see so many parallels. I see so much in this story that relates to me. Right now, today, the difference between Jonah and Nahum. The difference between there was a chance and there's no chance. I'm living in a day of chance. And it's up to me to give them a chance. If they do, it's theirs. My question isn't, what are they doing? My question is, am I giving them enough chance? Am I telling them enough? Am I living it enough that they can see something to make a difference? We are living in a day when there's a chance to repent and turn and be forgiven. And God will wipe away everything. But there's a day coming. There's a day coming when no man can preach. There's no chance left. There's no opportunities given. And at that point, it's not about punishment. It's about vengeance. Put, put, me, put me verse number two up there just a minute. God is jealous. That word is God, El. That is the great God, El, E-L, his great and powerful God. But then three times in, in three segments in one sentence, the Lord, that is Jehovah God. That's the Lord. That is Jehovah. Jehovah, the Lord, revengeth. Jehovah, the Lord, revengeth. And is furious. So he did. He, he's going to revenge. Now he's going to revenge and he's furious. And the Lord will take Vengeance. Jehovah will take vengeance on his adversaries. His adversary is anybody who rejects Jesus Christ. Your family, my family. Your friends, my friends. Your co-worker, well, not my co-workers. Praise God, I love my co-workers. I got it. I got it. I got the best workplace ever been. Man, we got a story to tell, guys. And, and, and if I ain't seen anything else before I even got started in this, it's seeing the difference between punishment and vengeance. And God says that he's going to avenge his enemies, and he erased them 
from the face of this earth. How bad must it be for those that reject Christ? I mean, how, how bad must hell really be? Father, thank you for being so good. Thank you for the gift. Thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you for the blood. Thank you for Calvary. Thank you for the empty tomb. Thank you for the offer. Thank you for the cleansing of sins, the washing in the blood. Thank you, Father, that our name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Thank you that old things have passed away and all things have become new. Thank you, God, that we have been forgiven, God, that we've been given a new home, a new name, and, and God, that we have a place in glory. Thank you, Father, that there is forgiveness available to whosoever will, Father. But, Lord, I pray you forgive us of our failures, our faults. God, I pray you forgive us for everybody that we've walked by. I pray you forgive us for every time that you told us to talk to somebody and we didn't. Every time you told us to call somebody and we didn't. Every conversation that we've shied away from that we should have had, God. I pray, Lord, you'd forgive us and make us usable vessels. Clean us up. Strengthen us, God, and use us, Father, that we might reach those that are lost, God. That they might avoid that day of vengeance is coming, God. Lord, revelation is there, and it's just like every prophecy that was given, God. It's coming, and it's not all peaches and cream, God. Well, there's, there's a sad part of Revelation. There's a bad part when all of death and hell is cast into the lake of fire. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth and outer darkness and torment, God. Lord, there's a, there's a great part of that story for us. God, there's a great, great story in Revelation for the children of God, the redeemed of the Lamb. Lord, there's a horrible story being told about those who reject it. And God, you told us in your word. If they rejected the blood's on their hand. But through Ezekiel, you let us know that if we don't sound the alarm, their blood's on our hand. I don't know what that means, God. I don't know what form of punishment that is. I don't know what that looks like. But I know it'll be heartbreaking enough just to stand in your throne room and see somebody that we know cast into hell. And we could have made a difference if we'd have just told them. Make us usable vessels, Father, to reach this world. We love you, God. Thank you for being so good. In Jesus' name, amen.